where did this story idea come from? Well, it really started because of a place um, called Lake Cherokee, which is a very small uh, lake in the South Carolina Blue Ridge where my parents have a lake house and they've had it, gosh, they bought it a few years before I was born. So they've had it, you know, 30 plus years. And um, I grew up there just exploring the woods and exploring the land and fell in love with Cherokee history and the place. So it really started with the place. And when, when did you start working on this book? Yeah, well, I started, um, I started writing the novel in 04, actually. I, um, I was headed to this um, South Carolina Writers Conference in Myrtle Beach. I was a newlywed, and my husband and I had scrounged the money together to send me down there. I was teaching as an adjunct instructor at a community college, and um, I was looking for things to send, a manuscript to be critiqued, because they had that option, and just wasn't satisfied with anything else I had. And so I just started writing this, because it was something that had been percolating for years I'd always wanted to write about. And I wrote 10 pages and sent it off, and that's where it kind of started. What drew you to the 18th century right before the Revolutionary War? Well, I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a history dork. There's no other way to say it. I love history, and uh, it was almost a third major when I was an undergrad. I took all my electives as history courses, and I'm fascinated with the history of the colonial South. I, I really love um, studying and researching time periods before, right before huge events happen, because I think that's where kind of a lot of the um, the intrigue takes place. And I um, I picked this period because I love the revolution, but I picked this period because for the Cherokee, um, it was still a period where they were still very powerful and pretty darn mysterious. And to this day, since they didn't have a um, a written record uh, back at this point in the 1700s. Um, there's a lot you can do with it and there's a lot of mystery to it. So that really drew me to that particular time period. That is interesting because it's a huge deal when your main character decides that she is going to leave Charleston and go to an unknown territory to search for her cousin. Right, her cousin. And I just think that it's so interesting, the fact, too, that she was a young woman. She was 25 in the book. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't that young back then, but yes. Right. That's true. You're probably, you know, you're a, a grown woman kind of by then because she was kind of alluding to the fact that she was verging on spinster, that she was an unmarried woman at that point. But that she was actually communicating, traveling alone, although she did have a chaperone for a while. And then she's actually communicating and negotiating with the Cherokee. Just from being in graduate school and studying all these years, I knew that at this time period, to be a woman, and if you had any kind of power, so any kind of autonomy, you either had to be single or widowed at this point. And so I knew that... I wanted her to be single and I wanted her to have an unconventional childhood, something that would give her a means to head into the back country like so many people were doing, especially immigrants to the colonies. Um, but there had to be a reason for her to do it. And so I came up with the, the loved one being captured. She was headed to help him and also was just feeling incredibly stifled um, by her life in Charleston, which was so utterly different than what she would encounter on the frontier. I just, I keep thinking of the clothes they had to wear back then. I mean, 
corsets and petticoats upon petticoats and whalebone stays and never letting your hair down. I mean, it just makes me shiver to think about it. (laughs) I thought about that too, because you were talking about at one point in the book, she is out living in this, this wilderness area in this territory that she's kind of settled and she is fashioning her own britches, <laughs> which is, you know, totally unconventional. Um, but it's easier to ride a horse that way when you have pants. Absolutely. And the backcountry was so dangerous. It's, it's hard for people to think about when they travel to South Carolina now. But um, it was just such a dangerous place. And um, I'd actually read these accounts by a, tra- a true historical figure, a traveling minister who traveled into the backcountry during around the same time period. And I love, he's really stuffy um, and self-righteous. And he loves to talk about how horrible the pack country people were and how he would see women, you know, um, barefoot and with their hair down, it was just, it offended his sensibilities so much. And so I thought that was just great. I thought, what can I do with this? You know, what would I do if I were stuck in this situation? And, you know, I needed more comfortable clothes. (laughs) Well, let's go back to the research because it is evident in the book that you had to commit to a lot of research of that period. And the other thing that I thought was really well done was uh, your use of the different languages that would have been used at that time. Um, Not only are you, you're talking, you have Gaelic terms because the family is from Scotland and then you um, have Cherokee, the Cherokee language. How did you research those different languages? Well, I relied heavily upon um, one main resource for the Cherokee, and it's a compilation of papers by a man named James Mooney, who was an ethnographer for the American government um, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, he spent about three years living with the Eastern Band of Cherokee, and he collected he became um, very, he became beloved by them, really, which was unheard of for a white person at the time. Still is in a lot of ways to this day. But, um, and he became very close to a member of the Eastern Band, a man named Swimmer, who white people, we would have called him a shaman or something like that. And he was basically an elder. And so he learned the language. He learned their legends, their history, their formulas, their... Um, their medicines, you know, everything that they used. And so that, the compilation of his papers from that work, it's huge. And so he had written, you know, the language or so many different words and different dialects, which was important to me because it's very hard. You know, if you study Cherokee language now, um, the dialects and the language, just like anybody, you know, our language is completely different than it would have been 200 years ago, you know, or more. And the Cherokee had different dialects and different sections of their nation, just like, you know, you can find 10 different accents in Georgia or South Carolina alone, you know. So I thought I really want it. I want to make sure that people are talking like they were as close. I could get as close as I could, you know, to how people would have been talking back then, especially the Cherokee. It was really important for me to to get as close as possible as I could to what they really might have sounded like. Definitely. Well, I have been reading the e the electronic version of your book, so I highlighted all of the different terms that I thought were interesting. And the the first thing that jumped out at me at the very beginning was the term blue stocking. Oh yes, yes. Can you tell us what a blue stocking is? Yes, a blue stocking. What we would think it was a, a learned woman, so a bookish woman, but at this time it was an insult. 
to call a woman a blue stocking. So um, when Jack in the book calls Quinn a blue stocking, he's doing it sort of facetiously because um, white people, especially of the time, it, it kind of meant, you know, a woman who was well read. But at this point, that wasn't a good thing. You know, it was in some ways a woman trying to be like a man, an unmarried woman as well, who was well read and educated. I'm curious how you were able to balance being true to that time period in terms of the language, in terms of the events. You use real people from history. I know that Nancy Ward attends one of the events in the book. So how were you able to balance that with the fictional part? That was an interesting process for me because I loved history and I grew up just loving South Carolina history in general. I knew, well, the fact is, if I wanted to write about the politics of the Cherokee, especially in the colonies at this time and what was going on in the back country, for me, since those were issues that I wanted to touch on, it would have been extremely difficult to talk about them without talking about Atticula Cullah or Nancy Ward or Andrew Pickens, you know, people like that who were around and who were heavily involved in the time period. So I just decided I would do what several authors have done and I would take, you know, fictional license but try to, you know, recreate these people through my imagination, but try to do as much research as I possibly could on them to stay as true to the historical record as I could. And I don't think it's possible to say completely true, but um, I tried to do it. <laughs> How did you learn about the environment in which this took place and kind of the, the outdoor space that you set the book? Well, um... Like I said, I grew up in the area, so I spent, gosh, years just playing outside in the backcountry. My parents um, were really into the outdoors, so we camped and hiked and backpacked and paddled. Um, you know, my dad had me paddling the Chattooga River as an elementary school kid, you know, in a canoe. So those were, and the Chattooga, you know, has not been changed, or as much as possible, you know. Um, since that period. So it's still a wild water, wild and scenic river. But um, I also worked as um, an outdoor educator for several years and led backpacking trips and hiking trips and paddling trips and things like that. But, um, and then a lot of it was research and I spent time, you know, because the landscape has obviously changed. I mean, almost the entirety of the Appalachians um, have been logged, you know, since Quinn's time, since the time of the book. So I spent quite a lot of time reading accounts, um, especially uh, William Bartram's travels, and he's very detailed and talks about the land that he traveled through. And um, I read another uh, set of journals by a man named Lieutenant Henry Timberlake, who actually lived with the Cherokee in the 1750s for several years, and just you know tried to marry my own experience with these things that I was reading. And and what surprises me is that so much of the landscape, you know, as changed as it is, still fairly much resembles um, what it may have looked like. You know, the highways that we have in the upstate of South Carolina now, like many of the original colonies, they were originally game paths, which were then, you know, footpaths and then wagon trails and eventually, you know, became our highways. So to me, I feel, I felt like I could kind of piece it together. Did you know when you wrote those first 10 pages for the Authors Festival that you were going to have a very 
passionate love story? <laughs> I um I love a good love story. I, I, but I was more um, wrapped up at that point in just the time period. I was just so excited about writing about the time period and about Quinn. So I didn't I didn't really know that her relationship with Jack was going to be as passionate as it turned out to be. That sort of just happened. Yeah, because whoa, when he came out of the woods that one day, the whole story kind of shifted. <laughs> yeah, and I struggled because I, I never wanted it to be just about him and just about their relationship, you know. It was important to me that it wasn't, it didn't hinge completely on that, but, um, you know, I, I, knew, I knew it was important and I knew it would be important to her to find somebody who loved her and appreciated her for her unconventional self especially at this time period. Many of the characters, certainly the people who live in that settlement, are outsiders in society at that time. What attracted you to that cast of characters? I love, um, I, I like epic novels, and not that Kiwi Valley is an epic novel, but I love novels that really delve into kind of friendships and familial relationships and have a large cast of characters. I've always enjoyed that. And then I just knew that you know, just from research, what kind of people were settling into the backcountry at the time or that were brave enough or crazy enough, you know, to settle into the backcountry. And I kept thinking about, you know, what was going on in the colonies. Well, you had indentured servants, and some of them were coming up on their seven years or 14 years and where they were going. And um, you had the Cherokee who were slowly but surely being displaced. And um, with the freed slaves, um, with Hosa, his character... Um, I just loved drawing his character because at this point, which is going to be shocking, but at this point in South Carolina history, there um, are more freed, um, freed blacks and freed African Americans than at any other point after that, you know, until modern times, obviously. And South Carolina was one of the most diverse colonies in the British colonies. And so there were all sorts of people. Um, coming into the port cities and heading into the backcountry. And so I thought, you know, why not come up with this? You know, they have to be a cast of characters in a group, like I said, who's brave enough and crazy enough to come with a woman, you know, to come to this place. And so I decided I'd have her offer um, land free of charge, but also the fact that she required of them to um, be amenable to the Cherokee and to allow them travel through the land. That was a huge deal because that would not have happened in other places. Going back to um, Jack and Quinn, what do you think were the essential elements of their relationship and the evolution of their love story? I really think acceptance was a huge element because Quinn is, um, she's just so different for her time period. She doesn't she doesn't want the same things that a lot of other white women of her social standing would have wanted. Um, she's also extremely educated, and not that that was unusual, but her upbringing, being raised by her grandfather and not having parents, she had a lot of independence and a lot of freedom. And, um, you know, it took a certain kind of man to, at this point, you know, in history, to embrace that and to really love that. Um, and also for Jack, I mean, he he would have been called a half-breed. He would have been insulted and looked down upon at the time because he was half Irish and half Cherokee, which 
there were start there were and there were starting to be plenty of people like that in the backcountry. So and they were certainly looked down upon. So, um, you know, for her to accept him for all that he was was important to me. Because also, Quinn was Quinn was very proud of the fact that she had survived twenty five years without being married. Right. Yeah. She never intended to marry. Never intended to marry. She. Um, and not that this is all in the book, but in my brain, you know, she had always known that once she reached that age and her grandfather had promised her that dowry, that she was going to do something with it, you know, and she, she tells her, you know, she tells her cousin Owen, who was like, who was basically her brother, he's like her brother that, you know, she had never intended to marry. So it was a sort of a total surprise. Back then it would have seemed late in life, which is hilarious to think of now that a 25 year old, you know, marrying would have been a spinster. Um... But for her, it was just more of this, this wonderful and fabulous surprise to meet somebody like Jack. I know that you have been a part of a master's program in English and have taught, and that you are currently enrolled as an MFA student. How have you been developing your craft? How has your education helped you as a writer? I, got, I earned my master's in English before I wrote the novel, and I had always thought that I wanted to um, earn my PhD in English and teach on the college level, and so I knew I needed to get my master's first. And I went back after I had been a reporter for a newspaper because, and the reason I didn't go right straight into an MFA program was because I thought, um, well, the real reason was when I was an undergraduate, English major, I finished my English major pretty early and became a double major in another subject. And so it had been quite some time since I had um, worked in, in higher ed with English courses and had studied scholarly works, you know, in the classics and things like that. And so I really wanted to get back and relearn all the great works. Um, and so that was important to me. And that has, I think, definitely affects my craft, you know. Um, I don't think you can read anything you love without someone without it rubbing off on you somehow in a good way. Um, but then I wrote the novel and then in the process of, you know, finishing it, finding a literary agent and eventually finding a publisher, I had applied to go back to school for my MFA in writing because I felt like I really did want to, um, kind of up, up my game a little bit. And, um, and like you said, I wanted to, to, uh, get better at my craft, and um, I'm in a low residency program, so what's really impacted me the most is getting to work one-on-one -on -one with another writer, with an advisor, um, and their, their, their singular attention to my work um, has been fantastic. So in that way, I feel like I have been turned on to certain issues in my own writing and issues in other writing that I might not have considered otherwise, or I might not have been able to, to put a finger on otherwise.